Hi, I'm James Verdeer, and welcome to the American Institute of Biological Sciences Bioscience Talks, which is a forum for integrating the life sciences. Today's episode is a little bit different from our usual fare. Instead of recording remotely, as I usually do, I had the chance to travel up to Washington, D.C. for AIBS's Congressional Visits Day and Communications Boot Camp. I was there to chat with some of the participants who were there to meet with their congressional representatives. And among that group were winners of AIBS's Emerging Public Policy Leadership Award, or EPLA. I spoke with several of the awardees from different years to discuss their science, the award itself and their plans for the Capitol Hill meetings. Before we get into the interviews, though, I would like to encourage our listeners to check out the show notes for more information on the Congressional Visits Day, the Communications Boot Camp, and the EPLA. For those of you who hear something that resonates with you in these interviews, please consider applying to the 2024 awards or joining us in D.C. next year, or both. AIBS will be accepting EPLA applications starting this November. Moving on to the interviews, first up it was a 2023 award winner, Inam Jamil, graduate research assistant at the University of Georgia. Let's go to the interview. Thank you very much for joining me today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Okay, so to get us started, I was hoping you could tell us a little bit about your science, what you're researching, what you're working on right now. Sure. Um, yeah, natural populations are going through some unprecedented amount of uh, change right now in the form of increased temperatures, um, drought, um, and also it like changes changes in like biotic interactions in terms of community composition, um, enemy natural enemies like herb for plants herbivores. So um, in order to adapt, they have to either uh, migrate or evolve. And in this third concept, which I study, is uh, they have they can also um, adjust their phenotypes or be phenotypically plastic. So I'm interested in how that third thing evolves and how that might vary across natural populations. So I study that in the plant Bucura stricta, which is a mustard that's native to the Colorado Rocky Mountains, or actually it's, uh, it's native to the Rocky Mountains, but its range stretches from about uh, Utah all the way up to Alaska. Okay, so this is a, a, a mustard that will, you know, uh, have a different appearance or body type in response to certain climatic conditions yeah that's what um i guess i'm using uh, we we have prior work that has shown that it, it depending on where they where it grows it does look a little different i mean it's due to a combination of genetic and environmental factors but i'm really interested in disentangling the environmental part and see how that shapes um phenotypes or traits that these plants have oh then yeah. that's interesting is that is that relevant in particular in a climate change type of context yeah, so um, at least there's a, the thinking in the field is how plastic um, or how, how much these organisms can adjust their traits in response to different environments can help them maybe as a Band-Aid solution adapt to uh, a rapid environmental change or rapid or in terms of climate change. So let's say if it rather than waiting to evolve to a drier and for a drier to be better suited for a drier environment, they can maybe make less stomata. Or which are these air holes that are at the bottom side of the leaf for regulating gas exchange. So basically, they can make these adjustments to better suit the environment. But like I mentioned, it's more of a it's a short-term solution because you can imagine as the climate or the environment continues to change, there needs to evolution um, needs to act and help actually get these populations to a, a new fitness optima. That's that's really fascinating. Now, the I note that the Rockies are very far away from where we are right now recording, which is in Washington, D.C. Um, and I'm wondering, you know, what what brings you here? What uh, spurred your interest in public policy? Yes, that's a great question. I wrote so back in 2020 when everyone was hanging out in um, their houses and trying to minimize how much contact they had with everyone else. I um, was I was notified of this interesting program 
that was run out of, uh, I think it was um, Irvine's public policy. Basically, it was a program that was it was it was normally like in person but because of covid they opened up virtually and then i was able to um go through the it was basically a whole summer long kind of training no absolutely so i'm wondering then you know how did you come to apply for the EPLO award yeah i uh so i um within my science policy journey i was able to so i had that one experience where i uh learned a lot about um how scientists get involved in the policy field I then went on and worked um, within our science policy group at the University of Georgia, which is called SPEAR, Science Policy, Education, Advocacy, and Research, a mouthful. But with those experiences, I kind of really wanted to um, get more involved in how um, how to actually use the skills or like the, the skills I'd gained to talk to lawmakers, uh, pol actual policymakers, and see how that um, how that works. So. I was. I learned about the um, the Apple Award and um, thought it was it would be a great experience to come to DC and actually um, get get some hands-on training and um, actually evaluate how this might look as a future career as well. Yeah, that's exciting. Um, so you are meeting with uh, lawmakers' offices tomorrow. Yes. I'm wondering, uh, you know, what kinds of things are you going to be advocating for? What are you going to have chatting with them about? Yeah. So uh, I, right now we're going to be talking a little bit about, or like advocating for um, the increasing the NSF's budget uh, for the next fiscal year. Uh, I also want to want to talk about like anecdotes relatively for like for my, for my personal uh, scientific journey. I've been. Uh, supported by federally funded um, programs since I started in um, and my undergrad program and also my graduate program for um, uh, it's been heavily reliant on federal funding so talking about that but also um, I've involved in a couple like long-term um, long-term research programs uh, which are which is only made possible through NSF funding. So trying to uh, convey the importance of collecting um, data for like long-term research, collecting that data and the inferences that are only made possible by long-term monitoring of um, all sorts of uh, environmental conditions and also environmental variables. Yeah, we've, uh, we have a, lo a long history on the podcast of chatting about the value of long-term um, ecological research. Uh, thank you very much for joining me today. I, I wish you all the best of luck tomorrow. Uh, I hope you have a great time. Thanks. It was great talking cool. to you. And next up among our interviewees is Elena Sulia, who is also a winner of the 2023 EPLA, as well as being a PhD student at UC Davis. Let's go to that interview. Thank you very much for joining me today. Yeah, great to be here. Thank you. Okay, so I guess let's start off with the science. So what are you studying right now? Um, so I study plant responses to climate change. And specifically, I study a native plant in California and how it copes with things like drought and heat waves. What's the plant? It's called Streptanthus tortuosus. Um, it's also known as the jewel flower or shield plant. And it's a mustard plant that you can find all over the Sierras. Okay, and is it flowering? It is a flowering plant. Okay, so is this going to be a banner year for it with all the snow that they've had? Um, well, Streptanthus is kind of a weird species. Uh, it's also not very charismatic, so a banner year might be <laughs> a term that you wouldn't use for it. But um, yeah, it kind of depends on where it's living because it's adapted to a lot of different types of environments. But I imagine that that snow is good for some places for sure. Um, is there any early indication of how it's adapting to climate change? Is it moving up up to higher elevations or, you know, do we see anything yet? 
Well, we aren't looking at migrations specifically, but we are looking at their adaptations. Um, and they just have a lot of really interesting variation in how they're morphologically structured, like their leaf shape and size and the timing of when they um, establish and flower. And so that's the types of traits that we look into. Okay. And, you know, is, is the hope that by studying that type of adaptation, you know, we can learn more about, you know, the, the ways that other species might be doing similar things as well? Exactly. Yeah. Because it's a widespread native species and lives in a lot of different environments across California. It can help us to figure out how other species might respond Okay, that, that's fascinating. Um, let's shift gears a little bit now and talk about policy since we're, we're in D.C. Um, so what sparked your interest in policy and the intersection of science and policy? Yeah, um, so I got really interested in science communication when I was an undergraduate and thought about doing journalism at that time, but wanted something that was a little bit more engaging with the community members. Um, and so I kind of set it aside for a while and explored other avenues and got really invested in diversity and inclusion in graduate school. Um, and then I took a position as an advisor for the Dean of the College of Biological Sciences at UC Davis, and that was really a policy-focused position, um, kind of advising on you know, how um, different issues that graduate students were facing uh, that could be addressed by the Dean's office and higher administration. And that's kind of when I realized that I had interests in science communication and in policy, and I could kind of unite all of those into a science policy career. That's that's fascinating. So what brought the EPLA to your attention? Oh, I think I just saw an advertisement in some kind of newsletter that I had gotten. I got a lot of emails um, about different policy awards I could apply for, so. What kind of career are you envisioning? Is it too early to say? Oh, no, I definitely want to, you know, take a stab at science policy. Um, I think I'm really new to it and I have a lot to learn. So I'm applying for different fellowships um, and we'll kind of see where, where those lead to. But um, yeah, I could see myself doing uh, more the uh, policy for science or science for policy angle. I think I've, I've thought a lot about the structure of graduate education, um, especially in my role in the dean's office, as well as how uh, equity and inclusion can can come into that and kind of enhance excellence of science for everybody in the country. So those are some interest, issues that I'm interested in, as well as things like open science, which has been kind of a hot topic recently. And um, yeah, just the way that science is run in the U.S. is really interesting to me. So. Yeah, you sound very busy. <laughs> I am. <laughs> I tend to be an overcommitter, but. <laughs> um, so uh, you're, you've got some meetings lined up for tomorrow. Um, these are California offices, I assume, since we were talking Sierras. Yes. Yep. We've got um, five different people. Um, so they're constituents in different um, areas of California. So we have the, the two senators' offices and then um, some other folks that, that we're meeting with. And what kinds of things will you be discussing with them? We're going to be talking about advocating for federal funding of science. So, um, you know, we want to ask for full authorization of the levels that have been described by the president's office for the, for the budget in um, in the federal the fiscal year 2024. So. Um, I believe is $11.9 billion for NSF is the thing that we're really focusing on and trying to push for, um, but also just funding in general for R&D in the U.S. Okay, well, I very much hope that you're successful tomorrow. Uh, I hope you're looking forward to it. Um, thank you very much for joining me. Thanks so much. 
All right, and next up we have Michael McCloy, who is a 2022 EPLA winner, as well as being a PhD student at Texas A&M University. Let's go to that one. All right, so thank you very much for joining me today. Thanks, James. It's great to be here with you. I was hoping we could start off by talking a little bit about the science that you do. Um, you're a fifth-year PhD student. What kinds of things are you working on? Absolutely. So I am in the Ecology and Evolutionary Biology program at Texas A&M, and my research focuses on how bird communities in the western Gulf of Mexico respond to both short and long-term uh, weather and climatic stressors. So, um, for example, a big part of my research takes place in coastal Texas, where I'm analyzing both uh, the habitat relationships of local bird communities and how they've been affected by local weather patterns over the last 15-year period. Oh, that, that sounds incredibly interesting. So uh, do you do that like a lot out in the field, or is this you know more of a lab-based type of operation? It's about half and half, actually. So half of my uh, work is field-based, and I've had the opportunity to do a lot of you know, pretty fun field work, being out and about in the summers and the mornings, uh, going out and counting birds, and also doing a lot of habitat and vegetative uh, quantification. And then the other half of my research is largely modeling-based. So I am uh, taking some large existing data sets and applying some uh, new and novel modeling approaches to those to help answer some of these questions. That's really cool. Now, this is uh, sounds very far afield from the policy realm. You know, what developed your interest in policy? Um, so to answer that question, let me take you back to before I started graduate school at A&M. And at that point, I was working for a uh, conservation-focused nonprofit in Colorado called Bird Conservancy of the Rockies. And the mission of this organization was to essentially conserve birds and their habitats uh, across the uh, central and western U.S. And I quickly learned that both policy, uh, field-based research monitoring, and private landowners and private lands conservation have a very, very large effect on the uh, effectiveness of the research and conservation uh, outputs. So I learned that policy uh, affects not only you know, what funding might go towards these organizations conducting research, but also affects the implementation of uh, the research and uh, conservation on the ground. Okay, is that policy largely at the local level and federal level, all of the above? All of the above, absolutely, all of the above. And through my involvement with AIBS, I have been really fortunate to have a greater exposure to the policy at the federal level and connecting with my senators and my congresspeople to really uh, affect a greater change and to communicate some of that priorities uh, with federal funding into some of these uh, research-based pro programs. And I want to talk more about that in a second. Um, but I was wondering, you know, what brought you to apply for the award in the first place? How did you hear about it? You know, what, what kind of uh, got you thinking you might want to do that? So throughout my, what I quickly learned throughout my graduate career was that policy affects not only the on-the-ground conservation, but also affects the ability to even conduct the research at the academic institutions in the first place. And I really wanted to use my skill set and to get an experience to, you know, at least get exposure to or potentially influence to some degree um, the policies and the level of funding that we're able to get uh, in these scientific programs. And through exploration of, you know, some of these opportunities, that led me to um, AIBS and to the um, EPPLA uh, application. Okay, great. And so are you uh, planning to meet with any lawmakers uh, on, I guess it's the day after tomorrow? I am, yes. So we have... Uh, several meetings already scheduled. Uh, I am a uh, resident of Texas, so I'll be meeting with uh, Senator Cruz's office, which is already confirmed. And I believe we're still waiting to hear back from um, my uh, Congressman McCall's office, as well as Senator Cornyn's office. Um, and I hope to hear back in the next uh, you know, 24 hours or so about that. Great. And what sorts of issues are you uh, expecting to discuss with him? I'm especially excited to discuss with him the uh, upcoming federal budget for the upcoming fiscal year and the allocation of funds to organizations such as the National Science Foundation, which 
uh, provides opportunities for numerous graduate students and faculty at institutions across the country to conduct both applied and basic research in the sciences. Great. That sounds like a, a very busy slate. So uh, I wish you the best of luck with it. And thank you for having a chat with me. Thanks, James. It's my pleasure to be here. Thank you very much. And last but certainly not least, I interviewed Heidi Waite, who's a PhD candidate at the University of California, Irvine. And before we go to that interview, I just wanted to remind you one last time, go ahead and check out the show notes for links to more information about Congressional Visits Day, the EPLA, as well as our communications boot camp. But for now, let's go talk to Heidi. Thank you very much for joining me today. Hi, thank you for having me. Okay, so I guess the first question would be, you know, what are you studying? Absolutely. I am studying how climate change is affecting the critters, the species on the coast of California, how they're coping with climate change and how they might respond in terms of moving up and down the coast due to the increased temperatures. Okay, what kind of critters are we talking about here? Okay, these are critters that you find in the rocky shores of California. They are uh, exposed to the air during low tide and then covered by the water during uh, high tide and they are mostly invertebrates, so meaning no spine, which is exciting to be able to study some of these things like sea slugs and uh, oysters, or sorry, mussels and uh, crabs and so those sorts and snails. But no oysters? Oysters are a little bit more uh, estuary species, yeah. <laughs> gotcha. Um, so, you know, so are they moving up the coast? Are they changing their ranges or, you know, how are they adjusting to climate change? Yeah, so I'm uh, studying two different snail species. One's called the dark unicorn snail and one's the angular unicorn snail. Um, and it is, they're, they're both moving up the coast due to climate change. So they're expanding their ranges northern, nor northward. Okay, I got to ask, how do they get the name unicorn snail? I mean, do they have a protruding, you know, horn or something like that? Yeah, so on their shell, they actually have a little spine that um, kind of looks like a unicorn uh, horn, essentially, and they use that to sort of pry open their uh, their prey. So they are carnivorous, which is sort of different from a lot of other snail species out there. That sounds like a pretty cool snail. Yeah, right. I think so. <laughs> um, so are, are they particularly ecologically important, or, does it, or is it a case where studying them gives us information about the way that other species might be doing or adapting to climate change? Yeah, sort of both. So that because they're carnivorous, they're in this system, they're sort of top predators, one of the top predators in the system. So how they perform affects everything below them, essentially, in the food chain. So as they move for up the coast, they're moving into new habitats and a fully different system of species. So how are, we, how are they going to affect that system as they move forward? Start eating things, you know, disrupting the balance that's already there. Right. What do they eat? I'm, you know, something that's not very fast, I would assume. Yeah, mostly sort of mussels and other... Uh, other little critters in the in the inner title there. Okay, that's cool. And so I'm wondering now about um, your interest in policy and, and what might have sparked that. Have you always been, you know, somebody who follows politics? What's what drove that interest? Yeah, I this was sort of a more recent interest as I developed as a scientist. I was sort of wondering what's the next step. We do all this research, but what? How do we get this research to impact what we're seeing in the legislations and policies and actually make a a difference. Uh, so I, I did a, a master's at the University of Oxford in conservation and management, which started my you know mind thinking about policy. But it wasn't until I was here at the PhD level at UC Irvine, thinking about okay, this is really cool research, but how do I translate? How do I get people to listen? How can we make this actually impact um, and create laws and rules around building a better you know a world in climate change? That's great. And um, how did you find out about EPLA? Uh, I did some searching, was really looking for some way to actually get hands-on experience doing some sort of policy, and policy seems to be very 
you know, multitude of different things you can do, but this was a very good opportunity to actually get hands-on experience, talking to legislative folks, learning how to speak about science for someone in policy and outside of science. Uh, so I, I was really excited to be part of this. That sounds really cool. Thank you. And I'm, I'm wondering, uh, you know, uh, who you're talking to tomorrow and what sort of message you're hoping to bring them. So tomorrow we're meeting with uh, several offices of the House of Representatives and Senator Senators. Uh, we're asking for increased funding for the National Science F Foundation that funds a lot of basic research here in America, the majority of it. So we're really wanting to focus on bringing more uh, funding for science so we can create better solutions for the environment, for the health, for health system, and for all sorts of different scientific endeavors. Okay, great. So uh, last question, any consideration of a policy-related career, or is this something that you want to pursue, you know, sort of as a, a sideline to, you know, your normal research and, and potentially teaching? What's, what's the plan? I am really interested in following science policy as a career, and I've uh, I worked with an organization in the past as an intern doing some science policy work, and I'm going to continue actually working with them. So I've I'm headed in that direction of a career in uh, ocean science policy specifically uh, with Ocean Science Trust in California. So California-based legislation uh, and policy. I'm very excited. Great, that's very exciting. We'll look forward to hearing more. Thank you very much for joining me. All right, thank you. And that concludes this episode of Bioscience Talks. Just a reminder, the journal Bioscience is published by Oxford University Press on behalf of the American Institute of Biological Sciences and is made possible by the support of our members and donors. Thank you, and talk to you next time.